To be an anarchist only means that you believe that aggression is not justified and that states necessarily employ aggression and therefore that states and the aggression they necessarily employ are unjustified. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. Today we'll be talking with uh, Stefan Kinsella, the author of Against Intellectual Property, and he does have a new book coming out called Law in a Libertarian World. Mr. Kinsella, thank you for your time, sir. Hey, glad to be here, Keith. So uh, what is law? I think when it comes to the state, uh, people, uh, I at least very often think that <laughs> law is that which is delegated to the state, written down by representatives, and then enforced by police. Is that your understanding of what law mm. is? Well, that's an interesting question because the, – so the word law, if you back it up a level, um, has uh, many, uh, many connotations, right? So we talk about moral law. We talk about uh, physical laws like the law of gravity. Um, so there's different types of laws, and I think when people use the word law, they're getting some kind of, some kind of regularity about the universe. Okay, so when you narrow it down to… What I sometimes call legal law to distinguish it from physical law, you know, laws of physics, the laws of the universe, causal laws. Um, legal laws are rules of or normative rules of conduct that are widely respected and somehow enforced. And the word enforced um, can be interpreted different ways, but. Uh, Basically, respected rules in society. So for example, what most people think of the word law now is a statute or a piece of legislation, some written down uh, decree by the state that they've enacted as part of a given legislative process. Right? What they, call, they think of that as the law uh, or maybe the constitution, but even that's written down and that's like a, a quasi-statute. So in the old days or in the days of antiquity, the days of your whatever you want to call it, you would think of law as being a broad term, and so there's a game like the laws of science, the laws of physics, the laws of gravity. There's moral law. Um, there's ethical rules that apply to different disciplines like the legal ethics or medical ethics or whatever. You could think of them as laws or rules. <clears throat> and then there's legal law, the law that pertains to the relations among human beings in society having to do with possible disputes between them uh, to regulate their activities with among each other with respect to things that can be – have the, the, over which there can be conflict, basically scarce resources. So – the way I look at it is, you know, humans are, live in a world of scarcity. That's what the universe is, right? This is what Mises and Austrian economics talks about with Mises praxeology. We basically, in every action, whether we live alone, which no one lives alone, but if you live alone, or if you live in society, you're always trying to use scarce resources in the environment to manipulate that environment. According to the physical laws of the world as you best understand them to achieve some result in the future. That's what human action is. And in a social community, which we happen to be born into and live, live among, 
one thing you have to take into account is that you're dealing with other human beings, and this is largely good because we're social creatures and we like to live among other peoples and, and have society and not be Robinson Crusoe uh, or Ted Ted Kaczynski, who was the Unabomber, you know, some, some weird guy in a hut somewhere in the middle of Montana or wherever. Um, most people want to live among other people because you benefit from intercourse with these people. I mean, you know, just having being part of society, people enjoy that. And you also benefit from it because you can trade and you can then uh, get advantage of the division of labor. So some people can specialize in some things and others. So people trade, they interact, they live amongst each other, but that also gives rise to the problem of conflict over scarce resources. So the people that prefer to have a cooperative use of these resources <clears throat> so that they can be used without people fighting and physically squabbling, they tend to favor certain property rights or property norms, right? which, uh, which ascribe – Ownership between different people and different resources. So that's the kind of backdrop of what. So, and I think law is just the working out in a legal way by the legal systems that practically exist, like to give effect to this. Law is just the assignment and defense of property rights by certain claimants, that is, human actors in certain scarce resources over which there can be conflict. So every law is really a property rights uh, assignment in a sense. So for example, if you have a law that says you shouldn't commit murder, in effect that is a law that recognizes the property right of ownership of the potential murder victim in his body, like he owns his body. So it's another way of saying that you own your body. One way of saying that is no one is permitted to murder you or to kill your body without your permission, which is what murder is, like killing someone without their consent. Um, so I think of law – and now, now this is – you notice this has nothing to do with legislation or statutes. So what happens is the state comes along creeps along, emerges into society, and deludes people into thinking that it's some legitimate power, and they even delude people into thinking they're the source of law, which they're not, um, and the source of rights, which they're not. This is called uh, legal positivism. you know. <clears throat> and over time, law is usually made in a decentralized, organic, societal, natural fashion by common law courts. Or by custom and tradition, and we, we finally develop these rules that I, I mentioned earlier uh, just as part of being humans that are civilized and who live among each other. But then the state monopolizes law just like they've monopolized other fields of activity like uh, education and communication. Like the state controls the roads, the state controls the ports, the state controls space exploration, the state controls education for the most part, etc. And likewise, the state has controlled military defense and justice and peace and law and these things. So the state takes them over. They co-opt them. They monopolize them. Um, and then when they do that, the state sometimes wants to change the rules. They don't like these customary rules that the common law courts have arrived at to develop the body of private law 
or common law that we were talking about, which is which is roughly the result of the attempt of people to of judges and communities to determine the most fair, equitable, just rules in a given case, and over time that develops into a body of principles, which is what we would normally think of as law. But then the state wants to change that, so they want to make exceptions. For example, they want to say, "Oh well, the king is 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 uh, is uh, you know protected from from certain lawsuits, like like Donald Trump is arguing now." Or usually theft is is illegal and a crime, but the state can take your property and call it taxation because the king the king is a servant. Of God and special and exempted from the law, etc. So you have the emergence of statutes and legislation, which is the government decrees, which starts forming the bulk of the law over time. And over time, the citizens get used to that, and so everyone starts thinking of law as whatever the government has decreed in a written statute. Just like most people now are confused about contracts, and they think that a contract is something that you had to write down. Like they don't even stop and think and reflect that the basis and origin of contract is not about anything to do with writing. It's about a communication of consent among owners of property to trade with each other. Okay, Now that can be written down sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Lots of contracts are, ver are just merely oral. Um, or some people erroneously say verbal because verbal means using words. So verbal technically considers written and oral contracts. Some contracts are not verbal at all; they're just they're tacit. You know, if if I speak English and some other guy speaks Turkish and I'm in his country and I want to buy a, a candy bar from him, I just point at the candy bar, he hands it to me, I give him a Turkish lira. And I walk away. There was never any verbal communication, orally or in written form. So, but there was a contract. There was a contractual transfer. So, the essence of contract is the consensual transfer of title to resources by the owners. So that's what contract is really about, and that follows from what the law is about who owns what. And the problem is, of course, law has been corrupted, and the statutory legislative mentality of law that everyone thinks now. Like for example, you'll talk to one of these uh, um, common law court nut Bible Christian types who – they have the right uh, – they have the right sort of uh, – feelings right about the state, like they distrust it. So they'll say, but they'll say something like, you know, like an income tax protester, like the, like or, you know, the guys that say that the income tax is not really a law, like it's not really a federal crime to evade income tax law. Now their argument is that, well, first of all, they'll say something like, "Show me the law." That you'll hear this over and over again. Show me the law. Now what they mean is. Show me in the federal code of statutes where there's a federal statute that specifically says that if you don't pay your income 
tax, then you're it's a crime. But and and by the way, you can do this if you're an income tax lawyer. You can do this. Um, but the point is, when they say show me the law, they're already buying into this mentality of law as what's written down by the state legislature or by the Congress. So they've already given up half the game. So I don't think we should think of law as – I mean I don't want to be a, a nut or a conspiracy crank and say that these judges are all fakes, but in a sense they're all fakes not, not because they're part of a conspiracy, but because they're not doing – Law is the the legal profession is the application of the existing legal principles to serve your clients. But if you're a judge, the point of doing law is to try to do justice in a given case. That is, you have two people before you, two or more people before you, to have a dispute, and you try to resolve it by referring to time-tested principles and tradition and custom and and the existing body of the law. And you try to do justice. You give the right result. But once you have the state step in and start issuing laws by legislation, and that becomes seen by the people and seen by the officiators of the state as the main source of law, they start thinking of law as just this body of, of legal rules, administrative statutes or regulations basically emanated by some committee of some, of some state. And so then the task of the judge becomes just to just to interpret that. It's not so then it's not about justice anymore. It's about it's about just okay. It's about interpreting a text. You know, it's like if you have an English class and you might have two different people in the class debate about how to interpret the subtext of a given of a given modern play. That's fine. But the purpose of law and justice is supposed to be to do justice, and it shouldn't be just to interpret the words. Like what does the meaning of the word equal mean in the Equal Protection Rights Clause of the 14th Amendment? Like that's an interesting question perhaps, but it's got nothing necessarily to do with justice. But that's what law has become. The job of federal ju- State judges, I don't say that about. State judges still interpreting common law largely and trying to do justice when they can, when a statute hasn't intervened to force them to do the wrong thing. So state law and English common law, they still are developing to a degree even though statutes have intervened. But the federal system in the United States, we don't have a common law. There's no such thing as federal common law really. Okay, so we have a federal constitution, which is a statute written by a bunch of people in a committee, right? And the and the declaration, if you want to include that, is one of the founding documents. And then you have the federal statutes. So federal law is just interpreting the job of a federal judge is simply to interpret words written down by people on committees. Um, which again you know, you can find lots of cases where you and I would, as a libertarian, would disagree with the result because we would say that result was unjust. You know, like someone goes to prison for a cocaine offense, or someone's executed for treason, or or whatever. But 
you have to admit that legally speaking, the judge was probably right because according to the law, this person committed an offense. So unless you separate the law from what the state does and think about it as having to be rooted in more basic norms and morals, then your normative or your moral criticisms of what the state does is going to be confused. Now, uh, we have uh, an idea that's now uh, generally referred to as the myth of the rule of law from John Hasness. And it's sort of uh, one of two ideas from what I understand. It's one that uh, people are able to exist without pretty much knowing what the laws are. Out of all the laws that have passed in America, I don't think I've read any of them, to be honest. I know I read one, but that one didn't even pass. So we have that side of it. And then we have the other side of the rule of law, where it's like it will explicitly say Congress shall make no law uh, infringing on the people's right to bear arms. But then you can ban bump stocks and... That is just down to the interpretation of the judge uh, or the First Amendment. Uh, apparently, you can lock up Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning for totally peacefully exposing war crimes. What are your thoughts on the myth of the rule of law? Yeah, so Hasnas, uh, he Hasnas is one of these guys who is um, – I think he's like an un unheralded genius. He. He's he's um, there's another paper of his on anarchy, which is also really good. So he's a guy that's like he speaks little, but he says a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like he doesn't have 1,700 articles in on blog posts on one of these flippy websites. Like he only writes sparingly, but every time he writes, it's something monumental. So, um, and his myth of the rule of law was was monumental. I've read it many times. I haven't read it in a while. So maybe misremembering parts of it, but um, what he did was he sort of upended – so usually libertarians have been skeptical of this whole critical legal studies and critical – I forgot what the, the broader term is. You know, This idea that like everything is in a context in society and nothing is solid and you know this kind of lefty critical theory movement. And critical legal studies is a subset of that. But what he did was he took a part of the critical legal studies idea, and he said, you know, they have a point in the sense that, um, so you don't have to be a total uh, relativist or skeptic about everything in life in general, which is what is somewhat implied by some of the critical the critical theory types. Um, but what Hassan points out is that. And I think his argument hinges upon recognizing that most law now is statutory law. I don't think his argument w would work so well um, if it was customary common law. But what he points out is that no, the critical theory guys, the critical legal studies guys are correct that there's not – there's often not an objective interpretation of a given statute. So if you take a given statute or a given constitutional provision… Which to my mind are the same. They're all just written down things that we're supposed to regard as, as the law, um, in this region, right? In the U.S., for example. Um, like, if you disagree with what the court does in a given ruling, the Supreme Court, let's say, in America, 
often you couch it in language that they made the wrong decision. So you're implying that there was a correct decision, and they just chose the wrong one. What Hassas points out is that no, the crits have a point that law is often vague and subjective and relative, and therefore the way you judge or decide as a judge um, in a given case is based upon other factors, like basically your value preferences. And people – conservatives don't like to hear this or admit this because they have this ideal, rosy idea of the U.S. as some kind of uh, perfected version of this English common law tradition, and we're, we're, it's the weak theory of history. We're, we're marching ever closer towards the truth, and law is objective. Now, I think there's a little bit something to that romanticized notion if you talk about the pure – common law itself and the way it does develop, and by the way, that applies also to the Roman law, which developed in a similar way, uh, even o older than the common law. But decentralized systems of impartial judges or courts or tribunals whose mission is to hear disputes between parties in an attempt to seek justice, taking into account the legal principles and expectations and customs and traditions that have been developed so far, you can see how that would tend to develop a body of law that would over time get better and better in most ways. Just like natural sciences, we, we advance in natural science. But the problem is once you introduce this notion of legislation as the primary source of law, either the primary source of law in like Western Europe or a primary source of law, as in England and America, then you start corrupting the law with all these exceptions, all these statutes, and the, you know the U.S. Code, um, antitrust law, tax law, administrative law, uh, all these agencies that exist: the Bureau of Minerals Management Authority, you know, the Immigration Service, everyone, the FAA, the you know the, the whole idea of the. Uh, what was the doctrine in the in the 70s? Uh, the the, fa the fairness doctrine, like when the FTC controlled the airwaves, and they still do to a certain extent. They said, "Well, you're not going to get a license to have a, a television or radio broadcast unless you <clears throat> respect the fairness doctrine. That is, if you have a, a conservative on, you have to have a liberal on too, or something like that, you know, or vice versa." Um, which is the motivation behind. Obama's FTC's order to impose net neutrality on the internet using the FTC's uh, authority, which Trump then reversed, and now it's probably going to be reversed again when Kamala Harris wins, right? So, because um, you know we all know that Biden's not the real candidate; it's really Harris. <laughs> so that's kind of my. Uh, rant about law. I think law has been perverted and corrupted. I don't think most judges, at least federal judges, are real judges because their job is just to interpret federal statutes and the Constitution. It's not to do justice. Again, state judges are another matter because the common law still has a, a strong aspect of what they're, they're supposed to do, and they do private law. Um, just like most lawyers don't do a job that I think is – okay, 
imagine a world where we had abolished cancer. Like let's imagine we so we come up with some kind of treatment or drug and we can we we've eradicated cancer. Okay, so the the, the discipline of oncology, the specialty among medical practitioners of specializing in cancer prevention and cancer treatment would disappear. Which would be a good thing, right? Um I mean the people that do it now are noble people because they're trying to help people that have a problem. It's a real problem. Um, it's the same thing with lawyers. There's lots of lawyers who exist now for a reason, like patent law, which I do, or tax law, or defense attorneys who defend people from drug from drug prosecutions. They do, in a way, heroic things to help people who are caught up in this system. And have real actual problems because the system does exist. But if we could just eliminate the drug war or reduce taxes down to 1% of what they are right, or get rid of the Fed or get rid of patent and copyright law, then half of these jobs would just disappear overnight, and that's fine because it also means that resources that are now being tied up doing this are free to do other things, which, which is just an indication of how… Damaging to human prosperity and wealth and all overall human living and life, how damaging these laws are. They create whole professions, tax accountants, TurboTax, you know, all this stuff. Things that don't really need to exist. Um, it's unfortunate that they do, and given the problems that have emerged, given these, given given the consequences on people's lives. That, that exist because these laws are, are real, you need these guys. You know, It's horrible that we have uh, uh, narcotics laws in this country. But given that we have these laws, you have lots of, of people, young people, young black males usually or whatever, whose lives can be ruined by an incarceration or whatever. Uh, because of these laws, and so thank God we have defense attorneys who can at least potentially mitigate the damage or help them a little bit. But you can see that these guys' whole careers shouldn't be necessary, right? Um, so you have this whole superstructure of wasted effort that's dragging down the underlying free market engine of productivity, right? The underlying free market engine. I'm just afraid that this stallion, this steed, which is being chewed on by thousands of gnawing little locust horde maggots, is still racing aw racing along, growing stronger, but I'm afraid that it could be killed if Joe Biden wins. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most important election of our lifetime, so but maybe. Um, now, uh, you... Uh, we're, I'm sorry. So the book is titled Law in a Libertarian World. What would yeah. the law more or less be in a libertarian world? Um, okay. Sorry, I stepped away for a, for a sip of, of my water. Um, the, the, the um, law would be, as I said, so in a libertarian world, to my mind, that means a world where Libertarian principles are widely respected. Okay, 
Now, that's a, that's a matter of degree. In fact, we live in a libertarian world in a sense. It's just not perfect and complete, and I don't know if we'll ever live in such a world. But the more that libertarian principles are respected and the more consistently that they're respected, then the less domain there is for the state. Um, I mean right now we don't have a world of a one-world state, thank God. We have 200 governments or states around the world, and they compete with each other. Although the U.S. has some domination to some degree, although we have rivals, you know, the European Union, China, Russia, uh, and even smaller nuclear states. Once you get nukes, then you know uh, it's kind of hands off, which you know is a good thing and a bad thing, of course. Um, I mean, it's not it's not pleasant to think of North Korea or Iran having nukes. On the other hand, it's not pleasant to think of the U.S. having nukes. So, um, and on the other hand, if Iran and North Korea had nukes, yeah, they might use them in horrible ways. They might bomb Israel or they might bomb New York someday. I hope not. I'm afraid that's going to happen. But on the other hand, they might. We might have to leave them alone, and maybe it would cause peace. I don't know. Maybe if everyone had nukes, we'd have a more peaceful world, sort of like the old expression, an armed society is a polite society. The problem is there's lots of crazies out there. You have seven billion people in the world. You only need one of them to like be the nut who says, screw it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bomb New York. Um, so law in a libertarian world would basically be – so here's how I view it. It would be the working out of the basic principles, right? And the basic principles are what you can call self-ownership, but more properly is called body ownership. Everyone owns their own body as a presumption. And then they also, as far as other resources in the world, inanimate or even animate resources, animals, you know, but non-human, non-previously owned resources, land, resources like trees and metal you get from the ground, animals, whatever, um, even other more abstract things like shipping lanes, airways, you know, where airplanes travel, uh, easements, you know, rights of way, all these things. These different scarce resources um, would also be privately owned, and they would be owned in accordance with some basic principles, which would be first use and contract. And maybe one other you can think of, which would be um, rectification. In other words, all things being equal, the guy who had the piece of property first is the owner, unless he sold it to someone else by contract. So then contract could be a second principle, or unless he physically harmed someone in a tort like a, an act of crime or trespass. And now owes them restitution, so some of his property transfers to the other guy because of that. Other than those three things, that's it. Now, there's a few other there's a few other nuances like um, inheritance law, mar uh, marital marital regimes when you marry someone, but those are like that's like contract law in a way, uh, and inheritance law is more about causality. Like if you bring a dependent being into the world. Um, 
you have some obligations to him both morally and maybe even legally to support him. Okay, so that's why the civil law idea of forced heirship came about. Like, you know, if you're a parent and you have money, uh, you know, you have an estate, a patrimony, we call it, <clears throat> which I guess shows we're a patriarchal society because we're not saying a matrimony, but whatever, it's a patrimony. Uh, your estate, part of it is reserved to your child, and you can't take that away from him. And the the thinking behind that is that well, someone's got to be responsible for this kid. Better to be the parent who brought him into the world than than me and you as taxpayers, right? So that kind of idea. So and then over time, the law would be the developing of more concrete uh, formulations of these basic ideas, tested by examples and tested in different cultures and compared. And over time, it would be more and more efficient. I actually think in a way a richer, more advanced, more cosmopolitan, bigger world with, say, 100 billion people, trillion people, whatever, would be a better world and would be a world that would use more lawyers because we would have fewer patent lawyers and criminal defense lawyers. I believe that's true because there would be fewer crimes and there wouldn't be a patent law. You wouldn't have any trust lawyer specialists. You wouldn't have tax lawyers, for example. But you would have more lawyers just because deals would get bigger and bigger and more and more nuanced and complex, and you could afford, okay, I'm going to do a $1 trillion deal to, I don't know, mine the coal off of Uranus or something, you know, some huge mega project. Yeah, you can afford a couple thousand lawyers on the payroll to help get all, it all straight. But to my mind, that's just a symptom of the increasing division of labor and the increasing wealth in society. So the more lawyers you hire for private transactions, um, the more it's a sign that society is more advanced. Right? So yeah, if you're poor, you don't even have a lawyer. You just kind of throw it up into the wind and hope for the best and count on tradition. But yeah, if you can spend more money and one more lawyer to hammer down one little nuance, that means that the whole deal is worth so much. So I could see the role of lawyers being even more advanced in a future society, and I'm not I'm not personally a uh, – uh, I like science fiction, but I don't really believe AI is going to come along anytime soon to really replace lawyers with AIs. Now, as far as uh, people getting the ideas of libertarianism so we could sort of embrace a libertarian world, there is a quote in Theory of Socialism and Capitalism by Hans Hoppe on page 195. He says, the state cannot be fought by simply boycotting it as a private business could because an aggressor does not respect the negative judgment revealed by boycotts, but it also cannot simply be fought by countering its aggression with defensive violence because the state's aggression is supported by public opinion. Thus, everything depends on a change in public opinion. What are your mm. thoughts on how to uh, – yeah, page 195, Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. What are your thoughts on it's difficult to get people to read a big book, but – if we're able to effectively communicate, we can more or less change public opinion in the same way monarchies were generally recognized. Now, whether you think it's an improvement or a, 
you know, lack of improvement is irrelevant to the case that there has been a big change in public opinion of government. What are your thoughts on changing public opinion and if it's uh, w- worth putting any effort into uh, or maybe just telling people the costs and benefits of, hey, instead of a trillion statutes written by people referred to as liars, let's embrace self-ownership and private property. Um, I'm, I'm torn on this issue, to be honest, because I used to think this way. Like I used to think – well, I was always pessimistic in the sense of What's the chance we're really going to persuade a critical mass of our fellow people to be libertarians, right? But I used to think that that was the goal. Like, so here's our goal: our goal is to persuade somehow a critical mass of our fellow citizens in America or in the or on the Earth, or whatever, to understand economic, liter- like to read Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, to understand Rothbard, whatever. I mean, I know I, I I remember I've heard these stories about some of these little fans that, who, who who circled around Ayn Rand after the Fountainhead, but while she was writing Atlas Shrugged and like Leonard Peikoff and Nathaniel Brandon and all these guys, uh, lots of people, the circle, and they they sort of had this kind of weird utopian belief that as soon as she published Atlas Shrugged. Within like three months, the world will be converted. Now that's, that's what naive. George Reisman said. Yeah, I think George Reisman. Yeah, I think George Reisman was the one who said that. So they believed this, and they thought so. But they're thinking like the intellectual division of labor. Like you know, there's ideas from the intellectuals and the philosophers, and filters down to the academics and the professors, and then it filters down to the students, and then the government workers, and then the generations, and blah blah blah. Um. I am way more skeptical now of that idea. I I still fight for liberty for different reasons. I don't I, – I'm more like Albert J. Nock. Albert J. Nock has this idea called the remnant. Like our, our job is to just keep this remnant of liberal ideas alive in the meantime until humanity finally grows up. Like I, I sometimes think that humanity is still a, a primitive – we have amazing technology, but we're still a primitive race. We came out of the trees too soon in a sense, but that couldn't be stopped just the way evolution works. Um, I'm afraid that the logic of the public choice economists is roughly correct. Um, this this whole idea of the, uh, the, the, the prisoner's dilemma, uh, all these kinds of things, once you have a certain, le- certain large region control – a state will emerge, not 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 in a million years maybe, but now, and in human past, because there's an advantage for someone just declaring themselves to be the king, and asserting their advantage, and then all the people go along with it because they have their own lives to live, and you know all the all the standard public choice reasons like, you know, if someone puts a lot of money into a campaign to get a law passed. Uh, to make the minimum wage greater or to impose antitrust law, there are certain vested or special interests who will contribute to that because they will, you know, they can put five hundred thousand dollars in and then they'll get seven hundred thousand dollars of benefit out. You know, but the average citizen doesn't 
have the incentive to fight it because he'll put a dollar in and you know it's like so you have these amorphous blobs of opposition and so then the the, the special interests get their way but to me that is a logic that's part of the human condition and i'm thinking nowadays so i don't know if i, I agree with hans hoppa theoretically that yeah if a certain critical mass of humanity or or the people the adults in a given region had a change of heart and understood economics yeah maybe the government would collapse but i just don't see that happening because of the incentive structures that 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 arise so to my mind either we're doomed to be stuck with government forever because of this problem which is not to say that government is ever just, by the way. So I don't believe that if something is so-called necessary, that it means it's just. Uh, you know, murder might be necessary, rape might be necessary in the sense that um, you can never eliminate crime forever for all time because people have free will and you can't control the future and you can't control other people. So you could never eliminate crime. You could make it 0.001 of society, maybe, but that's no guarantee that there will never be another crime again, right? So by the same token, um, you just can't keep this genie in the bottle. So my only hope now is that there's something natural about human evolution that will someday lead us. It's almost a Marxian idea, you know, like you know, Marx thought that the state would would naturally wither away after certain stages of capitalism, whatever. I have a Similar view that – or hope that the state will wither away um, once it becomes irrelevant, and that just basically means that everyone becomes little gods, and if we become gods by being so rich and powerful, just by the energy of the division of labor and the free technologic, you know, technological expansion, if everyone has a food machine and energy and – Safety because of their own robot army of dro you know, drones that protect them. The state w may remain like it does. Like if you go to London right now, you can go visit the Tower of London and see the. You can go to Buckingham Palace and see the guards out there doing their little thing. Everyone thinks it's quaint. No one really thinks the Queen has that much power anymore. She's like in a zoo in a sense, right? So I I could see that something like that happening, like where the state becomes seen as an uh, an antiquated, relatively powerless relic that we're preserved just because of the heritage and, and the connections, but it really doesn't matter to your life. I mean if you want to smoke marijuana, you can smoke marijuana. If you want to be a billionaire, you can be a billionaire. If you want to be homosexual, you can be homosexual. I mean the state really has no real power anymore. But it's not because libertarians went around proselytizing and writing books and passing out pamphlets and fielding candidates for the Libertarian Party. It's just because of the natural evolution of society. And by the way, I think it has to be that way because if it's not natural, then it won't last. You know, because the Libertarian Party, we're gonna we're, if we win, 
I mean, what are we going to win? We get 1% of the vote. But imagine we get 60% someday and we finally won. Well, then how are you going to recruit new libertarians? What are you going to tell them? What's the urgent problem? We need to be libertarians to defeat the statist empire, but we already defeated it 50 years ago. So it would slowly atrophy, and then the, some state would emerge again. You know. Yeah, uh, Michael Malice uh, made that uh, s- sort of point in his uh, quick, pith- pithy way where he said, yeah, I think uh, anarchism will finally be possible once teleportation is possible because it's really the state's ability to imprison you that gives it so much of its power and to coercively stop transactions. So, yeah, I definitely think that is a, a great uh, economic way of looking at uh, how the mindset of people uh, would change. Now, uh, let's say that I am uh, someone who just cares about people cooperating and people getting justice or people getting what they are due, whether it's murderers and rapists or people who have been very kind. Why do you think uh, law in a uh, libertarian world is a better foundation for that person to live in versus law in a statist world where he has representatives fighting on his behalf, passing laws in his best interest. Oh, that's interesting uh, way to think about it or put it. Uh, well, I guess it's not clear that it would be. So look, there are some people living today who are probably better off with our corrupted institutions than they would be under a libertarian society. There's no doubt about it. There are some hyper-rich defense attorneys, um, defense contractors. You know, There are people that do profit off of the existing uh, state. So there's no use pretending that Somehow transitioning from our corrupted world to a, a freer world would make everyone better off. It, it wouldn't make everyone better off. I mean in a Aristotelian sense, I guess you could say it might make everyone better off, but that's kind of cheating. Um, it would make most people most people way better off. Um, that's why I think the question is justice, like what's, what's the just thing? Um, but I, I guess I would say this. If you compare these two worlds, a mainstream kind of modern-ish world to a libertarian world which respected libertarian law, if nothing else, if you compare apples to apples, right? everything equal, ceteris paribus, the libertarian world would be far, far, far freer… And richer, and also I think more interesting and diverse. You'd have more. It'd be an unpredictably amazing world. Um, Artistic freedom, human liberty, fewer tragedies, fewer less crime, um, way more wealth for everyone, almost everyone. And so, in such a world. You can live a, a better life just because you're living in a better world. It's the same reason, you know, people move from Eritrea to the U.S. or to, you know, or they move from um, somewhere in Africa to Canada or whatever. You know, it, 
it's 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 definitely a move up to a more open liberal free society and a richer one too. I think that's also important. So what I see is just basically technological developments and riches are the are two of the important things we need for the human race to finally liberate itself from the shackles of the state. Um, um Another one – so the third one would be knowledge, like understanding and, – and that's the one that the libertarians have been focusing on, like even Hoppe and Rand and these guys, the Libertarian Party. They're trying to do some kind of information awareness campaign to try to make change in the basic root structures of enough people's minds so that we – we, 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 we have an effect. Um, but the problem is it's not a one-for-all. It's not a once-and-done thing right? because there's new people dying, being born all the time, other people dying. It's, it's, always, it's always an eternal battle. It's always a continual struggle. Uh, you're never going to convert like 60% of the population, and then you're going to be done. And I think you'll never convert them anyway because they just don't have the… <clears throat> They don't have the incentive to learn this stuff. They're not interested in it. And plus, the government controls the schools, and so you know they're they're basically hopeless. So all you can hope for is a gradual emancipation of the human mind because of reality just outpacing socialist dreams. So, for example, um, in 1990. 89, 90, 91, when East Germany, the wall fell, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, basically the, the, the communist system imploded. Right Now, even to this day, people are still confused about why or what happened, but at least most people are aware of that fact. It was a glaring fact, and I think that became a teaching moment in the sense that even people that had a dim – only a dim understanding of economics, they had never read Mises on socialism or whatever. Everyone sort of knows that Western liberalism works, capitalism works, and centralized economic planning becomes hideous and authoritarian and inefficient and doesn't work. So just that one world event… Taught generations of people to be a little bit leery of central economic planning. Now, you could say that people are short-lived in their memories because we're about to elect Kamala Harris and Biden, who are going to do a version of that again in the U.S. And so it may, it lasts maybe 20 years, right? I don't know, 30 years, and then people forget, and then they. They restart all the horrors of the centralized regimes of the past. But still, the point is people can learn by osmosis and by experience, even if it's not theoretical. So instead of us trying to tell all of our uncles and friends at Thanksgiving you know, parties and you know, when you go see a football game with your buddies, instead of trying to pass out a pamphlet about eye pencil or whatever… Um, you just have to hope that 
over time people get the idea because it's natural. Yeah. Um, I definitely, uh, the, the one that I just know was put out by, uh, you know, the intelligentsia was, yeah, the Berlin Wall fell, but, uh, so people thought, uh, free markets worked until 2008 when the free market gave us this worldwide recession. I, I see that talking point everywhere. So it really goes to show you that once a narrative is framed in like, you know, the first month or so, then people will buy it, whether it's the truth or a lie. I mean, you still have the idiot Adam McKay saying, well, what we need is Glass-Steagall, even though none of the banks that uh, fell like Lehman Brothers or AIG or Bear Stearns, right. they weren't commercial and in, uh, investment merged. They were both right. uh, in their individual sectors. But you still have that narrative. Jeremy Corbyn pushes it. Uh, Bernie Sanders pushes it. Uh, any of the Chavez supporters like uh, Sean Penn. Um, so, yeah, I definitely see uh, how framing the narrative. Uh, we got a couple uh, m minutes left here. Um, I'm curious. Uh, we have a very different approach from the Austrian economists. Uh, the average economist, uh, you know, that I see on CNBC, very worried about stocks and the GDP. However, Austrians start with the idea that humans act. Why are you an Austrian who focuses much more on human action as a starting point rather than the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Well, um, I think it's because the perspective of the Austrians, specifically the Misesians, right, which Mises was, I think, the greatest economist of the 20th century. Um, and he was, of course, uh, building upon work done by previous Austrians, like Menger and Bombavark. Uh, but I think he was sort of the – it just makes sense to me. So – and it, it – it, I won't say it meshes with libertarianism, but it it's compatible because we're all feeling different parts of the same elephant. But um, just all their critiques of the of the methodology of mainstream economics, which I believe did go astray in the in the 1900s um, by becoming more positivistic and more scientific and more empiricist, right? So first of all, I think Keynesianism was a huge mistake, and then I think monetarism and Milton Friedman and the positivism of these guys was a mistake. I don't think that's a rational and uh, defensible way to understand what we mean by economic phenomena. Now, I will hasten to add that I am not and don't pretend to be an economist. I'm just a um, – enthusiastic and grateful student of people that I I mean in my mind I I think of what I call the high Austrians as the as the epitome uh, of this and that would be you know Mises himself and then Rothbard and then some of the more Misesian uh, followers who developed it in different directions Peter Klein Joseph Salerno Hans Hermann Hoppe Guido Hilsman Jeffrey Herbener uh, these guys. Um, some of the other Austrians who are more Hayekian or fellow travelers, I can appreciate some of their stuff, although I'm a huge Hayek skeptic. 
Um, there's almost nothing um, in Hayek that I really greatly admire, to be honest. Um, so I think that the Misesian approach makes most sense. So it makes sense because it's a humanistic, realistic, and verbal, that is not mathematical way of explaining human action. And it's not because they're afraid of math or whatever. I'm not afraid of math. I have two engineering degrees. Um, but it's not the right way to describe the contours of what humans do in their lives. Right? We select means. We envision the future. We choose ends. We act. Um, we do calculate in terms of money, and that's a good thing. That's one good thing about the emergence of money. And possibly Bitcoin. We'll see. But uh, I think actually a solid understanding of – put it this way. I think if you have a rudimentary understanding of economics, just basic economics, law of supply and demand, that kind of stuff, that's probably enough to make a lot of progress as a legal or a political theorist or thinker. But the problem with Keynesianism and with monetarism and these other schools is that they have these ideas that are wrong and they can mislead you, right? Like the idea that you can compare, uh, like utilitarianism, you can you can compare uh, uh, value preferences among people in in cardinal terms. Um, that that ha that idea even makes sense, or that you could use such a model to to model a ideal or perfect economy and then say that we we defect from that and therefore the government should come in like which is which is the idea for example behind the um, antitrust laws like oh in perfect competition that's all well and good and fine and that would be the ideal that we should aspire to perfect competition everyone has perfect access to information there's no transaction cost. Everything gets, you know, all this kind of stuff. But when we don't have that, the government needs to come in and intervene and fix this problem, which is, again, the argument for antitrust laws. Like, well, if we had perfect competition, it'd be great. But when you don't have competition, then there's a gap. There, there's there's a consumer deficit left, and you know, the supply they don't people don't produce enough. They capture monopoly profits. So we need to come in and have an antitrust law. Same thing with intellectual property. It's like, well, you know, in a perfect world, you would have the optimum amount of innovation. But because, but, but you know, because of the free rider problem, like Richard Epstein points this out, right? Um, uh, if I invest resources to produce a new, a new invention like a pharmaceutical or something, then other people can compete with me too easily, and so their competition is unfair in a sense because they don't have to pay the R&D uh, cost that I had to pay, so they can just compete with me too easily, and that means I would never invest in it in the first place, and so we have a, sh a deficit of we have a deficit of drugs. Like we we have a, a suboptimal amount of pharmaceuticals being made. So the government 
of course, with its magnanimous, omniscient bureaus, needs to come in and tweak the free market to give monopoly grants of patent privilege to some people to make up for the fact that they're being competed with against unfairly by people. I mean the whole thing is like a weird jigsaw puzzle of bullshit. Um, but you can see how you get to that point, or put it this way. You don't really get to that point because of the arguments. It's the other way around. The arguments follow. These things happen naturally because there are constituents out there who, who, who want these monopolies, and they will come up with arguments after the fact to justify why they need it. So what used to be called a, mon a, a monopoly grant of patent privilege, now they call that intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So they just change the label to justify the system that works in their favor. Right. So but luckily, luckily, luckily we have encryption and the internet now and that is helping to undermine copyright. It's almost impossible to really enforce copyright on a large scale right now. So that's a good thing. <clears throat> and my hope is which I've said on many other podcasts, which my hope is that the same thing might happen for patent law when 3D printing becomes more mature mm. because it will give people the ability to evade patent law as easily as they now evade copyright law. So that's one good thing about two of the worst laws is that technology might let us undermine these laws and make them dead letters over time. And I guess my hope would be the same thing for I mean, you can even imagine something like that for the drug like, – take the drug war. If you have a 3D printer, you can print cocaine or heroin or marijuana in your basement, and no one knows. How can the government stop you from doing it? So maybe 3D printing will also undermine the drug war, right? And you could imagine tons of other examples too. Uh, you know, weapons, weapons regulations. I mean, you know, this is this is what's probably worrying right now the Second Amendment uh, opponent types, the gun control people. They're probably terrified that within a certain number, amount of years, maybe 20 years, 30 years, people are going to be able to print their own bombs and guns and weapons and ammunition without anyone's permission. So their laws won't matter anymore. Uh, I don't know. If I, even I want to see a world like that, but it, it's coming. No matter what you say, it's coming. So, you know, you can't stop the power of, which which may be why we don't detect life in outer space. Maybe, maybe we all, everyone always kills themselves with some kind of gray goo. That's my pessimistic side. <laughs> All right. The Fermi Fermi's paradox. Where are they? Why don't we hear of any life in outer space? Because everyone reaches a certain level of technology, and some guy comes along and comes up with a bomb that kills everyone. You know, something like that. 
Well, hopefully uh, we are uh, slowly getting rid of the Harry Trumans of the world with uh, sharing podcasts like uh, Stefan uh, Kinsella. Please check him out at stefankinsella.com. He's got such a terrific archive of podcasts. Of course, you will see the link in the description. Mr. Kinsella, sir, thank you so much for your time. Cannot wait for this book to come out. Thank you, Keith.